Hello, and welcome to BZ Listening. My name is BZ Douglas, and every Monday, this show features grassroots musicians that I've had the good fortune to cross paths with during my journey as a musician. These days, I live in Cleveland, Ohio, but I cut my teeth in the open mics of New York City and the outer boroughs. Today's guest is Robinson Treacher, a singer-songwriter with a heart and voice of gold that I met nearly 10 years ago at a family-owned cafe in Queens called The Waltz Astoria. We talk about Robinson's formative experiences with music, his creative process, the spiritual undertones of his lyrics, and his newfound love of house shows. This is one of the first guests I've had on the podcast that spent time in the same open mic scene that formed me as a musician. So we take a stroll down memory lane discussing some of the spots that were our our most and least favorite to play. You can find all of Robinson's music and upcoming tour dates at robinsontreacher.com and links to lots more stuff on the website for the podcast at bzdug.com. That's B-Z-D-U-G. And I think that's about it. Let's get right into it. Thank you for listening. And now on with the show. You were you said you were born in uh, what uh, in in Long Island? Yeah, I'm, um... I see. I had no idea, and I kind of just looked at like you know your style and everything, and thought maybe you would come from outside of New York and come to New York to get music going. <laughs> what, what what made you think that? I don't know. I don't know. It's not like you can say it's not a, it's not a fair thing to say about anyone. Like you don't look very New York because I mean New York looks like everything. Yeah, I guess that's true. New York really does look like everything. Um, I um, yeah, I was I was born in Queens, moved out of Queens when I was a kid, moved to Long Island, um, you know, Nassau, Oceanside, Long Island, uh, on the South Shore. Mm-hmm. But um, my parents are from Brooklyn, so there was always that doo-wop stuff in the house and and uh, uh, really good soul music and good old original rock and roll, and that led me to listen to you know, like all that stuff. But in the summers, I spent my summers upstate New York, up in um, uh, the Catskills. So everything I ever, you know, so I was as much New York as I was an upstate New Yorker. So, uh, you know, when I went to college and I, I went to college in upstate New York and I came back and my mother yelled at me, she said, Where's your, you're saying you're ours. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, you're talking like a hick. <laughs> I said, well, you know, because, you know, she says door. And I'm like, it's a door, you know, it's water. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, 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 they're Brooklynese, you know, and, and, and I don't, I don't have that. So yeah, I guess it sounds like it could be from somewhere else, but I just, I guess I just took on the, uh, the, 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 the style or I don't know what it is. It just kind of made, felt more comfortable for me to speak my way. And then that music was always, you know, because of that, I, I listened to stuff upstate and I listened to a lot of good folks, people that, that I ran into and, guy sitting down playing a banjo interested me as much as a guy you know with long hair playing heavy metal so you know i'm giving you the real short version but i listened to everything from um you know black sabbath and kiss and the Bee Gees and abba and i loved disco and i loved reggae and uh, uh, punk and the replacements and t-rex and all that stuff and i love my glam rock and as much yeah. as i love Joni Mitchell and i love uh, you know tom waits and and uh, I love my Nat King Cole and I love the Mills Brothers from the 1940s. And so I just, I, I ate it all up. That's what I did. I just, I, instead of spending money on, 
on on drugs and weed and stuff like that. I just I bought every album I could find. And when I would look at the the liner notes and the people that they would say that influenced them, and then I'd say, oh, and I'd go buy those albums without even listening to them. And, and that's what I did with albums. I would go to, um, they had these big flea markets back in the day when I was a kid. And there was a place called the Record Van. And it was just this, like, couple of vans worth of stuff. And they'd bring out these milk crates full of, like, 50-cent dollar albums. And I'd, you know, I'd... I'd take my money and I just go there and then I just buy a whole, I buy a whole crate sometimes because I just figured, you know, how many in the crate? Like, well, there's 70 in the crate. Okay. I buy them. The guy'd be like, you didn't even look at them. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I figured I'd go home and I'd spend Saturday, you know, just sitting in my house and my parents would yell at me, go outside, go, go do something. I'd be like, no, no, no. I'm, um, I had thousands and thousands of albums. Well, for that and amount I of money spend- too, if like, it turns out only two of them are worth the shit, you still coming out on top. That's right. And but I'll tell you, man, there are so many more that were worth it. I just didn't even realize, you know, in the middle of those things, you, all of a sudden you find some crazy, you know, Arlo Guthrie album that at the time I'm like, who the hell is this guy? All right, whatever. And then I'll, you know, years later, I'm going, oh, my God, I can't I own that album. And, and I can't tell you how many times that happened to me where I was just too young to appreciate what was in the bin. But I had it there for when I was ready to appreciate it. And I would just play it over and over. And I'd sit in the house and I'd rearrange my albums uh, alphabetically from record company, starting with Atlantic Records or Atco. <laughs> and then I'd go all, yeah. And um, I'd go all the way down. I'd, I'd, the next Saturday, I'd rearrange them from band order uh, alphabetically. And sometimes I'd rearrange it from light to dark colored album covers <laughs> on the spine. Like I just, I was this. They're sorted, they're sorted by uh, emotional core. These, these. So we go from uh, happy to ecstatic to uh, then we have, you know, depressed to sad and it moves over to angry. I got to admit, I never did that one. I never did that one. And I should have. Damn, I should have done the emotional, emotional uh, impact. Um, But uh, so this is so you were you were taking in all this music uh, as uh, in your youth. Um, Were you already like? creating music at that point or when uh what was your first uh, uh, no, uh was, foray into into performing or uh, whether it's an instrument or singing well i you know i had my house had i had like a, one of those uh plug-in air organs i don't know if you've ever seen one of those you plug it in and then you hear the air kind of coming up it's a plastic or they call them plastic organs ah it's a stand-up organ it well, my grandparents crazy. had one in the house that was like, it, it had two levels of keys and all these like toggles. Yeah. And then, yeah, when you yeah. play it, you could feel air around your feet through this mesh screen. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. And I would play, I would, I would learn Christmas songs. And I would, there were these buttons on the left-hand side, like on a, like on a, uh, like on a, um, an accordion. On the left-hand yeah. side, there were buttons and it would, that would hold the key. I mean, that would hold like a, a chord and then you could play the notes around it and move it around. And I would learn all these Christmas songs when I was like two, three. And then my dad had a guitar and I would play and I'd, I'd play, pluck on one string. And I'd, I'd learn smoke on the water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and once again, I thought I was like, this is great. But it wasn't that. I, I sang in the chorus as a kid. And then when I was in like sixth grade, I, we, me and some of the kids got a little band together and I played on one string. And, you know, and I, then I really, I was a drummer more than anything else. I wanted to be a drummer. So, I did that. I was uh, I got a big drum kit and that was um I did that. 
one of the the guests, uh, the last musical guest I had on last week, uh, he hosts a house show on the other side of Cleveland, and uh, a lot of a lot of times I uh, ask musicians like, you know, what what was your first instrument? Um, we're batting like three out of four. It was piano lessons, and they hated them. <laughs> hated them. I'm on that list. Yeah, so that's that's a trope. I'm I'm a pattern I'm seeing. But I really liked what he said. He um I was saying like, what do you think is like the best first instrument for you know, uh, kids and things? And he said drums, just because you know rhythm's foundational to everything, and it teaches you to your your hands and your feet to act independently, which will be useful for guitar or uh, playing piano and certainly singing. Being able to that was something that took me a while, you know trying you know coming real late in my 30s when i finally like can i play and sing at the same time i thought it was impossible when i first started yeah that's not an easy thing to do man and and if you're a drummer you know i mean you know like don henley's not the most i mean you know he's playing he's playing great parts don't get me wrong but if you're a drummer like phil collins and you're playing drums back in like the old genesis days like and singing i mean like that's like oh my goodness so yeah, I you know I uh, my first instrument was drums really because it, banging on things is is as old as you know as as Homo sapiens you know it's it's hitting things and knocking and noticing that there are different tunes you can get out of things and getting your energy out um, really it, it releases so much of you and then when you can formulate it into something that becomes a syncopated rhythm wow and then if you can do that long enough. Then you could start saying, hmm, now let me let me try mixing and matching with this. Let me hit that double beat twice with my foot. Mm-hmm. And then you get and then you sit behind a drum set and you realize how bad you really are. Because I think <laughs> anybody can bang on some tables. Really. You can bang on tables and have a nice little beat, get some shit going with your feet and your hands and get a nice little syncopation going, and then get behind a kit and you're like, Whoa, ho, oh, this is a totally different beast. So there's a lot. <laughs> so you were playing drums in bands early, first off? Um no, I, I just ha- I played drums in oh. my house. That oh, you just played drums. In, in, no, you know what it was? So it was like a threefold thing. Um, sixth grade, I'm playing a guitar because I had a guitar and nobody else did. And I can play Smoke on the Water so nobody else could. And you know, it was like that. Um, but singing wise, I was the lead singer in the chorus. So I knew I could always carry a tune. I knew I could always sing. And they always gave me vocal parts. So then when I got to like um, eighth grade, there were these guys in high school who wanted to play with me because I was friends with guys who had older brothers and I would sing and they were like, Hey man, my brother has a band. He's 15, 16. And I was like, dude, I'm 12. <laughs> and he was just like, well, and seriously, that's what happened. So, um, I started on Long Island. There were all these great clubs. I mean, there was Lamours. There was, uh, you know, you had uh, all these really Sundance, um, all these really big, anybody who's ever played like music from New York played all these clubs. You had Webster Hall, you had all these things in the city, but you had Long Island had really big, these big clubs and Februaries and, um, and just all these famous places. And uh, my father's place is another really big one, very famous. And when I was like 12, 13, my mother loved the idea so much that I, I was doing something like this, that she allowed me to play in the bands with the 16, 17 year old guys. And it was 18 to drink then and to get into the bars and I was 12 and they would, my mother would drop me at the front door. The bouncer would let me in. I'd get on the stage and play with these guys. And then I had to leave. The bouncer would escort me out into my mommy's car (laughs) (laughs) and I would go home. 
And my father was pissed. My father would be like, Evelyn, what are you letting him do this for? He's hanging out in clubs. And my, my mother would be like, Ronnie, he's having fun. Leave him alone. He's good. Trust me, I know his friends. And I wait outside the bar. And she, she really is a champion at it. She'd wait outside the bar. And I'd jump in the car. My mother would say, how was the gig? I'd say, fine. And, you know, the, the guys would go drinking and smoking cigarettes all night while I went back home and, you know, went to private school. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think your dad weird. I don't think your dad was realizing too the risk of like, you know, if you shut something like that down and the kid, you know, a kid was like, No, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm going to do it. Then they might you might have found a way to get there anyways. And then you're like, you know what? My dad's wrong. I'm gonna hang out with the the smoking and maybe smoking and drinking's fine. It, you know, like it it could it could have backfired. <laughs> and let me tell you something. Um my parents are in Florida. And what my dad does now is my dad joined, and, and this is uh, directly from me. Years later now, my, ja my dad, 75 years old, joined a doo-wop club. So he can now sing in a band in Florida, and he's out there. And, he, and they send me videos of him on stage doing that. And I think to myself, that was directly related to me. He didn't want me to get into it, probably because, you know, I, I, for whatever, whatever it was, he just thought, ah, it's ridiculous. Don't hang around it. It's something he always wanted to do and didn't have the balls to do it. And now he's doing it at 75. So proof, you're never too old. But I love the fact that he was the guy who was against it. <laughs> and now he's out there at 75. Proud. Uh, ripping it up. You always singing see, old songs. You always see like hashtag proud papa. It's like proud son. <laughs> yeah. And, and he really loves it. Now he's the guy who asks me more than anybody. I come back home. Hey, son, I saw you. I saw you were out in, you know, South Carolina. How were those gigs? Hey, you had like uh, that, that festival in Florida. How was that? What, what was it like? And he's, he's more interested now. But I think when I was a kid and he was working, he was just worried. And, you know, and I get it, man. I mean, yeah. you have an eight-year-old, right? Picture, picture your eight-year-old as son or daughter. Yeah, son. Oh, so, I mean, picture your son four years from now playing in bars. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> see, like, no, it's not, gonna, it's not going to be the same. I mean, like, because I'm in this world. Like... Your pa true. your parents your parents are you know if you're not in the world of musicians or whatever you you're gonna form an opinion on what it is and what these people are like and um, that's that's very true. It's very just true. no matter how generous it is or not. I mean, it's not gonna be accurate if you're not you don't know. Um, that's we, right. We'd know mother, and we would know how to navigate it. Yeah, and we we I don't think I would have the same sort of resonance. I'd be more like if my son was like, Dad, I wanna I wanna go into politics and i want to start running for student government I'm like, oh, i don't want you hanging around with those people <laughs> uh, <laughs> times have changed no, i want to be a lawyer i don't know if you want to do that son i don't, don't like uh, no you're not hanging around in law law offices that's not happening no son of mine <laughs> no. no son of mine is gonna hang out with those low lives Not a syllable I've been missing Cause I love you mm. You left cause I've been teasing But nobody here got to know the reason
at the Waltz Astoria open mic, I believe. That was the main mic I'd see you at. Yeah, I was, uh, and you're talking, what are we talking about, eight, nine years ago, right? Yeah. So uh, I didn't know what scene was going on at all, and I just saw an opportunity to pick up the guitar and try something I hadn't done before. I never sat in front of a, 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 an audience and played a guitar. I mean, I, I sang in bands, stuff like that, but I never sat there by myself on a stool and tried to, you know, so I figured an open mic would be a good place to cut my teeth. And I saw that that was uh, an area. So I tried it out and then it, it burgeoned into, you know, realizing that talking to some of the other musicians, they were like, oh, are you going to go to Nashville on Tuesday? I was like, well, what's that? Are you going to go to, uh, you know, uh, 7B on uh, on Wednesday? Oh, well, what's that? You can go to the Sidewalk Cafe on Sunday nights. I'm like, well, what's that? How many of them are gone and now? Then, I mean, like we, we lost. Yeah, Walt, we lost Waltz. We're right. losing Sidewalk. I didn't like Sidewalk. A lot of people I know have a big affection for Sidewalk. I rec- respect the history, but I hated that mic. I hated it too. It was horrible. It was a poor, it was it was the worst the worst one. Poorly done. Poorly. You got there early, and it was still a you picked a, a number. You could have gone on one thirty in the morning, and you you were there at ten o'clock. Yeah, and they would give. Um, I remember they would give. They, I got shit for. You know, I drew a number, and then it was like a very weird number. I'm like, how are we going to be at that, or whatever? And then I was paying attention to who was called, and it didn't seem to be making any sense. And if you went up and asked, like, hey, am I on, like, triple deck? Am I on the next half hour? Just so you know. So, like, you know, at some point you want to go, like, get yourself steeled up and be ready. Make sure you're in tune so you can hit the stage running. And they would give you so much shit if you were asking, like, when you're up, like, because not everyone is asking that, like, look, I don't want to watch everyone. It's like, I just want to know. But they think they treated everyone yeah, like a criminal, like or having like that, that bad mic mentality of like, oh, I'm going to I just want I'm just here to play for me and I don't care about anyone else. And it's like, it's not that, dude. I just want to know what I'm playing. And the other thing that was really I obnoxious agree. was when I, you know, I got up and I played and like you do like, I, I you know, in between songs or like, you know, putting on a capo or harmonica, I mentioned that uh, I think I was having the carnival, and they the the guy at the booth like like talked over me. He's like, "All right, that's nice. You're playing somewhere else, but you're playing here now, so let's just do it." 
because they hated if you if you mentioned that any place existed other than sidewalk. They had. I agree with you. I'm not going to mention the guy's name. I, I know his name, and I, I'm sure you remember his name. If mm-hmm. you don't, don't worry about it. Um, I would never throw him under the bus, but it, there was a pomposity there for some reason that they could do it how they wanted. And you know what? In, in, in all fairness, it's their night, their place. But you, myself, and I can probably mention a dozen other songwriters who swore they'd never go back to it. Cause totally. Mm-hmm. It was it was exactly what you just said. They and, were very uh, much about was, like creating like yeah, we're, it's us against a lot of things, and they had like the anti folk festival, which I never got what that that's was. That's right, the anti. Yeah, that was it was it was a joke. I think that I, look, I don't know. It was, it was a couple of guys who kind of got a little too big for their britches, and they realized they were in a spot where they didn't need to um, really kind of create a vibe. People would come to them because I mean, you know, uh, open mics are. It's desperation. You want to play for people. You want to get out there. I wanted to get out there to cut my chops and start to learn how to play the guitar better and try my songs out and stuff. And they were just like a factory, like in, out, in, out. They didn't care too much about it. It wasn't, um, they didn't nurture a scene at all. Not like Waltz. Waltz was like you went there and you hugged everybody. Well, I'll tell you, I can't think of another mic anywhere in that city a lot of them could have some of the same amenities and vibe or atmosphere but none of them were family run and that really made it special yeah it was and you'd go i mean i remember going out the back door into that like alleyway back to like tune up the guitar yep (laughs) and i and i'd hang out back there to sort of and you'd see people's like clothes wash you know clothes drying on the line (laughs) it was so old school man and then you'd come up the steps and you'd come in and you know, you'd sit at that, like, remember that, that sort of half balcony overlooking the, 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 the rest of the stage and, and, and Pedro's just a character and, yeah. and song was just, you know, song was sweet as a button and mama was up there, you know, selling cake and beers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cookies and scones. And it was such a cool, cool vibe. I never wanted to leave that. And that's what I say. Like when you look back on that kind of stuff, I think that's what I'm constantly in search of now. Yeah, yeah, and a couple other places were like that too, where you walked in and you knew people, and you. The funny thing about it uh, is that you didn't realize that there was a scene going on. You know, you were just doing it. Did you feel that way? Um, I I I learned that there were every mic kind of had a scene to some degree because there were like tribes. And yeah, the sidewalk people probably are the most like, oh, we're the si-, you know we're sidewalk, and I feel like they were trying to cultivate that, like you know. But then you had uh, yeah, you had waltz, and a lot of people that would just go to waltz because that was what was near them. And then you had um, probably the the biggest warmest family there was is um, did you ever go to Mike Club in the basement of Lucky Jack's bar? No. Oh yeah, because there that was run by this guy Sasha. And he was very big on like every show opened. He gave this little like speech and talked about how the space is sacred. He'd make everyone raise a glass and then hit their glass on the floor to respect like their space. And, and anyone, you know, he made it very clear. Like if you're in here, you're in here to listen. There are other places you can go talk. And every time someone played for there for the first time, 
everyone in the attendance had to give them like the virgin salute, which was just like, ah, <laughs> as long as everyone could hold it. And yeah, that was a beautiful room. And they, yeah, and, and, and it was uh, a random pull like sidewalk, but I never, there was never any shit about like, you know, I knew when I was playing and I love staying all night. You know, it's the thing that sidewalk purported to want to like cultivate, but I just, I, I, I didn't ever want to go back there from the way they, they ran it. But yeah, there, all these scenes existed. And that was kind of why I started the carnival is because I noticed like, you know, I would always see these people at Waltz and these people at Lucky Jack's and these people at sidewalk and they they wouldn't really cross pollinate a lot and I th that's what i found has been really cool about producing a show is doing that sort of thing where you're getting all these audiences and performers in a room that weren't normally and um the podcast is kind of an extension of that just you know in the hope that like you know people who listen to it because they know this artist will keep listening and then they'll learn about you and they'll learn about other people once in a while and i know exactly what you're saying about the circus once in a while, I would see that cross-pollination. I'd go into Manhattan, and I'd see somebody from the Queens thing. I'd go to Brooklyn, I'd see somebody from a Queens thing. So, but once in a while, not enough, not enough, I agree. It, people stayed sort of local to as far as they wanted to travel on a, a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, um, and, and a couple of these guys now through the years, um, I've met on the road in other places, very few of them seem to have moved out of that scene. Like, you know how those scenes are. Some of them are there, I mean, you know, I, whether they're serious or they're not, a couple of people rise and, and decide that they're going to make this their life. Um, and some people just go, well, it was good for what it was. And they learn to play a little guitar and hang out. The scene can be a trap. It can be for, I think, younger, mm -hmm. younger musicians and newer musicians, you know, like I wasn't necessarily young when I was in it, but it's it's definitely a trap from just like you have to make sure that like the only people who see you aren't other musicians and that you don't rely yeah. on other musicians as your audience especially there's special mics where audiences go to watch but um you got to get out of that scene or it can be it can be Walt, a, a was like that Walt had a lot of people who went to watch yes um, i was a Walt audience nice. i was a waltz audience member for years before i decided to try doing anything on the stage and i think i first tried poetry and then stand up and then i went into music and that was the other thing about that you get some of those nights where it was a mix and i loved that i thought it was uh yeah um, that made that made it more more genuine more pure you know for open mic it's a mic whatever you want to do uh you know north of you know basically getting up there and masturbating <laughs> outside of something lewd you can pretty much do it. You want to go up there and do some, uh, you know, some um, make animal sounds. You could do it. If you want to go up there and tell a joke, you could do it. it was, so, I, and you're right. It was really only, it wasn't a braggadocious thing. It wasn't like, oh, I'm playing here. I'm playing that. I did get gigs out of it. I mean, I did play waltz on like Saturday nights and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I did play some of those bars every once in a while. But you're right. It was, it was to get up there and your crowd was really musicians. And I think you're right about that. It is a trap. People would pat themselves on the back for, uh, I guess, championing mediocrity, I guess I would say. <laughs> you're, you're saying, oh, look, hey, man, I played that. And you feel good about it, but that but the, really well, only was playing for position. I'm not I, putting that down. When you, I mean, no, no, and, and, and it's, it's fine. It can be a judgmental term as far as mediocrity, but I was absolutely, you know, and not, not that I'm like this virtuoso now, but I know that when I was 
around you, like I, I'm a mediocre musician. Like my vocals have definitely in nine years gotten stronger. My guitar has gotten stronger, but it was important for me to find those places and have people support it and be like, I see where you're going, man. Keep with it. Yeah. And, and I didn't mean that in a bad way. either. I didn't mean like champion mediocrity. Like what I meant was they're patting themselves on the back for having gotten to play on a stage. But really all it was, was just a stage that anybody could play on. Yeah. It's a low bar. I mean, if you want to, yeah, if you, in a in a low level bar, in a a, a a corner of a corner of Queens or something. But I, I'm not putting that down. I mean, these are the these are all the building blocks of everybody's careers. I and mean, you ask anybody worth his or her salt, they'll tell you it all started in the open mics. Yeah. I mean, uh, in the last 20 years, anybody I've spoken to, and even some of the bigger stars, you'll say, ask Cheryl Crow, ask ask Coleman. You know, those people will tell you, they'll say, oh, it started with open mics in 1989 or 88 or some shit, you know, where they went down to L.A. and they went to this open thing and four people were in there. So you could stop there and say, OK, that's it. I played a bar. Or you can say, well, OK, let's see where this goes. So some people choose to, you know, just stop at the bar and some people want to take it further. But either way, it didn't matter. They were, they were fun nights full of people who uh, grew from watching other people have the balls to get up there. Whether they felt they sucked or whether they, they felt they were stars, they got up there. And that was the best part about it. And, and, and you know, I, I made some great connections with people who um, were doing things that I was so not doing. And that, you know, and, and that made me think about the way I approached what I was doing as well. Um, you know, hearing the different styles that were coming out of the world that they come. You know, Br Brooklyn and Queens is just like a, 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 it's a big old inlet from people from all over mm -hmm. the world. You know, I, I met people from... Gosh, you know, from Connecticut to Mississippi to from California to Wyoming, who had moved to New York for whatever reason they were they had, and here we were, kind of, uh, I guess, jiving off each other's backgrounds. So I definitely took away so much from other, however capable they were or or in, whatever it was, they gave me something that I took away. I was a better person for being there. 100% better person for being there. And if I had to give anybody advice on first steps in, and I have, on first steps in songwriting, uh, and I've said it, go to the open mic. Find your local open mic. Find a put, put a dot on a map and anywhere you're willing to travel within an hour, mm -hmm. go to those open mics and be a regular there. Cut your chops and then find the manager and then say, I'm interested in opening up for an act here and then move from that in, in that direction. So much more Four walls and a ceiling 
months ago i was throwing the house show the carnival and for um when in between acts you know i have a playlist that i play it's pretty much just everyone who's ever played the carnival and so you're on yep. there and your song one more soul came on and my act that night uh hannah stack she like just stopped me I'm like what the fuck is this <laughs> and, she, and became like an instant mega fan and so that was when, oh, that's so cool, man. You know, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I forget how many people you know are living these dark lives where they don't know about your music. And so it was uh, that was one of the first things that popped popped you back in my head, like, oh yeah, Robinson Treacher. And then as I got this going, you know, you were right there on the list of like musicians I needed to reach out to. And and um, I am I'm really interested in learning about like. If you have a, a creative process you've found that works, if it's different every time. I don't have a, a process I, at all. Um, I don't approach it in any way, but that I'll be listening to music and then I'll just feel the need to have a scotch, go downstairs and see where what I've been listening to lately takes me. And Sometimes I've been listening to, you know, maybe a lot of uh, old 50s stuff or a lot of country stuff or whatever. And whatever comes out that day, ideas, I just put them on my phone. I, I record little bits and pieces and, you know, I have thousands of little bits and pieces. And then there are some that I think stand out a little more and I go, ooh, let me go back to that one. And I'll work on it. And if it doesn't come to me fairly quickly, I kind of put it on a back burner. Mm-hmm. Uh, once in a while, I'll come back to something. But um, for the most part, it's, it's got to come to me fairly quickly because then I'm in the moment. Because then I'm not, you know, like to try to like, I mean, it's sort of like, would you have sex and like get ready? And, and as everything's sort of amping up, you go, you know what? I'm going to come back to this. <laughs> you, don't do that. you know, um, you, know you, you got to kind of like, I'm in the moment. I'm going to go with this and see where it takes me. Um, so quite often I like to be in it. Um, and I usually know right away if the hook, usually, so what I'll do is it's always the music and the um Melody comes first. I never have words first. Ever, 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 ever. Never, ever have I had words first. Um, I'll, I'll hum ideas. I'll go, oh, that sounds cool. And then I'll find myself like making up words. Like, do not walk into the bed and snow. And I'll go, oh, okay, that works. Just trying to find like the vocal, the vocal cadence that'll work for it. Yes. And then, it, then all of a sudden I find that the words that I'm saying are words I keep repeating over and over. And then I kind of formulate something out of that. I think it was Michelangelo who said he, he'd look at a piece of marble and the statue was in it. He just had to find a picture of it. So it's sort of that, like writing is sort of like a big slab of marble. And then as I'm going, I'm chipping away. And as I'm chipping away, I realize, oh, I guess the song's going to be about, uh, you know, uh, unrequited love. Oh, I, I guess the song's going to be about uh, driving through California. Oh, I guess I don't go in with any sort of thought process whatsoever. It just sort of they 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 emerge, and then when I'm done, and if I'm really proud, 
I look up to my angels and I go, oh my God, thank you so much for that song. <laughs> That's really how I do it. Now, specific song, I got to ask, because I was going back and I mostly knew your uh, track Porches. And then, um, yeah. you know, when I was look, coming back to uh, re-familiarizing myself with your work f- leading up to this interview, uh, it discovered you have this uh, new EP, Born. Now, I got to ask, <clears throat> why is uh, the guitar part in Woman so similar to One More Soul? I feel like yeah. that can't be a mistake, and I didn't know if there's a connection in those songs. I wrote, I wrote them about the same time. I wasn't really sure which way I was going to go. <laughs> oh, so, so is Woman like, I, this is an alternate version of how that song could have gone? It, it could have gone that way. It could have gone that way. So I decided I definitely had to record them on separate albums. Um, but I was kind of in, you know what it was also? I was kind of in a, in a rut of this sort of finger-picking style. And, you know, that, you know, what I'm, you know, obviously anybody out there listening to both songs, you'll go, oh, I, it's, it's pretty similar. But I just had two different um, ideas. Uh, and Woman was um, actually a, a buddy of mine was getting divorced and stuff. And, and he was talking. Sometimes those ideas come to me that way, too. Oh, that, that's another thing. Sometimes a guy will tell me a story about his life and all of a sudden the song just falls right into place. Mm. And this guy was divorced and he was uh, married to Ronnie Van Zandt's daughter. Um, oh, okay. And yeah, he, he, the guitarist in Shinedown. And, and he, we were in, in Nashville and we were talking, we were hanging out late at night. He was telling me the story and he was sobbing about it. And I was just like, man, if you had to write like an apology to her, you know? And that's what that song is. That song is an apology about saying wow. it's you know everything about woman is it's if you listen to it it's it's just he's trying to keep a manly strength and it all unravels with the last line you know i know you know basically i know it was me mm-hmm. and and you know the whole time it's blaming her blaming her blaming her like, why didn't you do this you could have done this you could have done this better and things would have worked and at the end it's like well at the end Inside, I really know what the problem was. It was me. It wasn't you. And um, so when I played that for him and I sent it to him, um, we got real lucky with that. That was, um, oh God, I can't think of the name of the guy, but it's Yo-Yo Ma's nephew is playing the cello on that. Wow. And we had a favor from uh, Brian Irwin, who's the producer. This is all done in Nashville. Um, he, uh, he said, I got a favor. I love this song, and I'm going to call this favor in from L.A., and when will you be back? I said, I'll be back in a month. He said, okay, in a month, I'm going to have this done. And when you walk in the studio, I think you're going to love this. So I came back to, to Nashville and I, I walked in the door and into the studio. And he was like, hey, sit down. Don't say a word. I want you to hear something. I said, what? He said, remember woman. I mean, remember, uh, you know, woman. I said, yeah. He said, um, I want you to listen to this. Well, what I did, he said, I called my favorite from L.A. And the guy just blew it out of the water. And I just sat there like, like bawling, like a, a baby. Mm. And I look, I look next to me and Brian Irwin's like, he's this great producer. He's from Canada. He's like this really like crazy, like, you know, just nutty, nutty guy. And he's sitting there crying next to me and two grown men crying next to each other. And I was just like, well, it did its job. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> so when I sent it to my buddy who I wrote the song thinking about, I sent it to him and, um, he said, I can't get back to you for a few weeks. I have to kind of process this. <laughs> wow. 
So I knew it, I, I knew it did the job there too. Yeah. Um, and he finally got back to me. He said, you captured it 100%. He said, maybe I need to admit that to myself. Now, with your songwriting, this is one thing I, I, I'm i curious. It seems like you've got some real gospel influences going on there, and I didn't know if um, there there's a 
a religious component to your life that you don't necessarily wear in your sleeve, but it seems there's a lot of subtext that I recognize as the spiritual vocabulary. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to state it. It's a spiritual um, vocabulary. It's a spiritual thing more than anything else. I'm not a not a church going guy or a temple or synagogue going guy. I'm, I'm not going to put it down. Um, you know, everybody needs what they need. For me, I think it's just more of a personal thing. Um, and people have pointed that out many times. Like, yeah, you say Lord or you say God or you say something spiritual or angels or soul or you know, you say all these things. You allude to all these things. But I, I, I think it's just that's when when I when it hits my heartstrings the most. It has to do with those sort of stylings. Uh, look, I don't know what your background was. When I was a kid going to church, when they would play those hymns, I'd lose my shit. What, I mean, what kind of church Catholic. was it? It was just a Catholic. Well, I mean, I was, I was raised Catholic. Oh, I was going to say I was um, Catholic. I was like, I, I was not moved by the songs in Catholic church at all. Oh, my God, <laughs> man. Are you kidding me? Like when they play like, here I am, Lord. I'd be like, oh, I'd cry every time. And I heard an interview with Elton John where he said he, as a kid, realized that every song he wanted to write was a hymn. Because they were just the most spiritually, even if there were no words. The chord changes, the 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 depth of the the the, the um, cavernousness of the acoustics in some of these churches, it just it it just it's just rife for you to psychologically buy in. Right. <laughs> I'm saying this well, that, in a bad way. That makes it sound nefarious. Buy, you know, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that does. I didn't mean it that way. But but to buy into the whole thing, you have to let loose of all of your emotions to buy into any religion you have to humble yourself to it um so to buy into the sound is part of it and the the the, that i mean really music is just universal it doesn't matter what language think about all the instrumentals that are just so Mm -hmm. beautiful out there so if you can capture that and put words to it and put a great melody to it it's something that i've always wanted to do so my slower songs quite often have a very um, I guess, timeless style to it. So you could say, oh, I don't know, was that song written in the 70s? Is that somebody else's song? Or did he write that song? Because it sounds like maybe I would have heard that before. And I think that's what I've always gone for, something that would sound more timeless. And gospel and church music is as old as the blues. Now, um the you have that that acoustic the uh, not acoustic uh, acapella song red Re- red wheelbarrow is that an original of yours yeah. uh, that almost that's one that sounds like oh is that just from like people just stomp that out on the porch in in, in older times or and I have never been able to pick out <laughs> s- I never been able to pick out some of the lyrics in my head I know it's uh, bla- blaze with chickens raised with rain or. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to ask you, like, what are the? Right. I, I've sang along with it, but I'm just like, I'm just gonna hit the 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 right vowel tones at the right spots, but I'm not sure what I'm singing. That's all good. There's there's a poem from 1962 from William Carlos Williams called "The Red Wheelbarrow." It's my favorite poem, and it's um, so much depends upon the red wheelbarrow beside the white chickens glazed with rainwater okay that's the whole that's i the just whole know i just googled it now all right i didn't know that was a poem yeah and it's one of my it, it is my favorite poem of all time really it, because it's just it's it's i mean to ruin it but 
it's really just about how the farm, the chickens, none of it would have existed without that little red wheelbarrow that's sitting off on the side, left out in the rain by the, by the chicken coop. So it's really a lesson in, hey, some of the things that we think might just be peripheral on the side might be the most important things in our lives. So it's always reminded me, and I've always kept that, I, I keep a copy of it in my wallet. And uh, one day I just decided that I would come up with the uh, words and use that as a chorus and just kind of come up with a, a, a whole thing to it. So I wrote it um, and I, I wrote all the, the verses and everything. And I wrote, but when I wrote it on the album, I had to thank William Carlos Williams, the estate of William Carlos Williams, because he did obviously inspire it. <laughs> just to make sure I don't get sued.
there's a really good um, one of the musicians around here organizes a roundtable for other musicians to talk about different topics. And one of them was uh, what you need to know about booking. Um, some of it was specific to Cleveland, but a lot of it was universal. And it was interesting that like some of the main points that were hammered weren't uh, the content or, or your quality level should necessarily be in booking. I mean, that's everyone's got to figure that out. But the important things they were saying that people don't realize is like it's not just about how good your music is. It's how you communicate and present yourself. And that stuff matters as much as how tight your sound is. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, I know a lot of uh, studio guys now, sessions guys, and um, some of them play with some of the biggest acts out there. And, and they all say the same thing. Um, I'm not the best. There are guys who are more proficient at the guitar or the bass. I'm really good. But what gets me the gigs is just being a really cool hang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what gets the phone call, man. Being a good person. And he's, when you're touring, you ask the major acts who they want to tour with. They, obviously, they want to tour with competent musicians who are great. But more importantly than that, nine times out of the ten, they'll, they'll just say, he's a good guy to tour with. I don't want to deal with divas. I don't want to deal with the ego. I don't want to deal with the brashness. I don't want to deal with drug addicts. Well, if you looked at touring as like, you're putting out on Craigslist, like, I need a roommate uh, for six months on the road. <laughs> That's a good point, right? No drugs, no smoking, no, 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 no pets, no smoking, uh, no substance abuse problems. Kind of really it. And if you're good, these guys get the gig back over and over again. They, they get these big tours. They're playing the rhyming. They're playing all over. They're playing the Opry. They're playing with all these big cats for like four or five months. And the, 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 the common denominator is that yeah they're good but it's really just that they're they're good guys and they're likable yeah you're going to call those guys back again and that's that's like what you're saying about approaching um uh booking it's just be a likable dude don't think you're you know god's gift to the next thing that's coming on the stage well and i i've uh my day job is in marketing and like web development and shit like that and i've been in like advertising for about two decades and uh you know, it, branding, you know, m- most people outside of any of that, they, they think branding like, oh, that's a uh, that's my logos and, and, and my colors and the font I pick. Right. It's like, no, actually, yeah. the way that the big dogs in advertising approach branding. And I've I've I bring this up because I think it's important for musicians to realize it's like your brand is not going to be what your album covers look like. And the you know the stickers and shit on your guitar. Your brand is the emotional relationship, pe- like the relationship people have with you in terms of like how they feel yep. about you. So you being a good person off stage, you being a chill person to yeah gig with and tour with, that's all is intrinsic to your brand as whatever like you know look and facade you put in front of things. And they have to co- oh, they have to align. That's the important thing when you start picking out, you know, your visual brand, like how it represents your actual brand. Um, those should connect, but your brand exists long before you have a logo. Well, I, I think it's sort of like if you change the word brand to reputation, then yes, that's it. Exactly. Your, repu- your reputation precedes you and your brand precedes you. I think there was a time period, you know, back in the day where to be aloof to be a little standoffish, to be, um, I guess, uh, ha- have a mystique about you was part of the thing. The fact that you were not accessible 
when you were, it made it even more exciting. I get that from like a psychological point of view, like they catch a glimpse of you as you jump into your limo, you know, like that's about all they get. Mm-hmm. And you know, nowadays, especially, especially in the singer songwriter world, um, nowadays it's uh, as soon as you're done, you walk out there, you shake hands, you kiss babies, you go have a drink at the bar with everybody. <laughs> you're I, running for office. I, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> you kind of are, but you know, the, the truth is, I, I thought that was that was a really uncomfortable thing for me. I didn't want to be elusive, but I I'm, and I'm a people person. I'm social, but I I was definitely uncomfortable with accolades. I was uncomfortable with somebody who wanted to come up and ask for an autograph or to take a picture with me or just to talk about the music. And um, if I could say I've grown in any way exponentially, it's it's that way the most that I've just been. Well, one of the ways. Um, that I feel way more comfortable now. I even say it when I'm speaking in, in between songs. I'm like, hey guys, this is like the last song. Uh, come meet me in a few minutes. Come say hello, say hi, da 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 da. And, uh, and you know, some of you guys look pretty familiar. I know you from here. Let's 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 reconnect. Come on, uh, I'll meet you guys in ten minutes at the bar. And and they all laugh and they feel good about it. And it diffuses any uncomfortability. And then all of a sudden, I'm sitting at the bar with a bunch of people buying CDs, and we're having a drink, we're laughing, taking pictures, and and they walk away happy. I walk away satisfied. And we just built a community. But I, it's not an easy thing for some people. Some people are very uncomfortable with that. And I get that. To some degree, I don't know that I am really interested in the sort of music career where like everyone knows my name. And like I would like a music career where you're like, oh, I, I, I make a living off of it. And the people who know me really like me. But I'm not ubiquitous. And I can go into a restaurant. I can go grocery shopping. Because that seems terrifying oh, yeah. and freaky to me. Like uh, the level of fame I'd be comfortable with is like, I just want that, you know, the people who know me, they know me. Not like, I want everyone to know my name the way that people, like when you're younger, you might aspire to fame and look at that and see it as a positive thing. It's like the older I get, I'm like, no, don't want that. Like I've always said, I always wanted to be like a, like, like a Tom Waits. Ah, yes. Where, you know, like Tom Waits, uh, 80, Maybe 90% of the people, if you walk through New York City, or maybe not New York City, but a lot of parts of the world, nobody'd know who he was. But, you know, like, like, like Suzanne Warren, maybe something like that, right? Mm-hmm. You, um, where you, um, you've, you've, you've written so much stuff for other people. And all the, all the, um, all the, the bigwigs know who you are. But you can go, you can go shop and nobody give a crap who you were. Nobody would um, really stop you at a red light and pull you over and be like, oh, my God, or point to you or take pictures of you. But when you walked up to, like, you know, when it was, it was Grammy night, they're opening the, they're opening the ropes for you. Yeah. You know? So that's kind of that's what I, I always wanted to be, one of those guys who the big wigs knew who I was. I'm in really good company there because I'm writing great songs for them. And every once in a while, you know, if I want to play my own show, I could sell it out. You, you know Jimmy Webb? So Jimmy Webb wrote all those songs for uh, Glenn Campbell. He wrote um, MacArthur Park. Like he wrote all these those classics, right? And um, like every once in a while, Jimmy Webb will come to New York City. He'll get on a piano and he'll sell the place out because everybody knows his songs. But he doesn't tour. He could walk through the street. He could be sitting in the in the aisle, you know, feeling the peppers to see which one feels, you know, mealy, and nobody would ever know. But you know, Grammy night, Jimmy Webb's walking in the door. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. He's kind of that's kind of guy you want to be i think uh, with uh as a songwriter it's nice to be able to like put on to 
have the option of anonymity. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's everything you, you can go back and be dad. You go play with your kids. You can go to Disney. You can do anything. People leave you F alone. But when you want to be you and you want to step up and you want to make that phone call to, hey, Bruce, I got a new song for you. And, you know, Springsteen's like, well, why don't you just come over the house? You know, you can. Right. That, that, that's kind of, that's like the gold standard. As far as I'm concerned, that, there's your brass ring right there. If you can pull that. Maybe that's a little shooting a little high, but I think somebody's got to do that. So why not me? Why not you? Well, the EP won um, the 2018 Independent Music Award for Best, um, best EP in um, Roots, Americana, and Singer-Songwriter. So that was really cool. It was really groovy. And um, they had a big like, you know, ceremony at Lincoln Center and all that stuff, and it, it won Best EP, which, I, which really put it on the map a little more. So when we started booking, um, I got a lot more yeses than noes. <laughs> 
that, you know, and, and that's what happened. So a few doors opened up because of it. And um, so, yeah, so uh, now I'm back on in the studio, finishing up two EPs, um, almost done with them in Massachusetts, recording it and in Nashville. And I finished all those country songs to now put out and, and try to sell those to country artists. So it's pretty busy. So in doing so, I got to get my name out there also. So touring becomes, you know, more necessary now than it was in the past. It was like, hey, I'd like to play. Now it's more like if you, you, know, you got to kind of show your name and show yourself out there and show up and be at some of the places where you see that you're getting a couple of hits on college radio or, and you, you start doing all those algorithms and things like that. And you, you hire a bunch of people to tell you, you know, how to do your job better. And <laughs> I mean, like you said, you're in marketing, so you, you know, the brand is not your logo, not the sticker on your guitar. I love the way you said that. It's not a sticker on your guitar, it's a sticker on your, your case. It's, it's you getting out there and, and showing up and having people bring you into the living room and playing for maybe 100 people a night, yeah. maybe 50 people a night in, in, a, in a house concert. And really just being out there on the scene and being accessible. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make my, the music accessible and trying to make um, myself accessible and honing my, my live shows so that I could bang an hour and a half out with my usual, bang out 90 minutes of a quality show that highlights all the different styles and is personable and makes people walk away going, man, I got to tell more people about this guy. And that's how you network. It seems like streaming is not really, it's a boon to, because I've had artists, you know, artists will grouse about like, well, you know, I had, you know, $25,000 people or 25,000 people listen to me last week. So, you know, I've got like enough money to go buy a coffee. Um, and gra and grouse about that, but then other but then other artists talk about the fact that like, well, if it weren't, I, I was discovered by Spotify. Like, you know, people found me through this or that, and just seeing it as like that's there to get people to my live shows. That's the job now is like getting out there live and like, you know, the money you make off of of album sales and streams is not the substantial portion of a revenue of a working musician anymore. It's not at all, 100%. Um, you have to be playing, uh, which it's, it's sort of like it was, you know, 60 years ago, they would say the same thing. Like, you know, songs on the radio, that's great, but you have to be showing and playing gigs. They weren't getting big cuts back then. Um, they weren't getting big percentages, you know, so they had to be on the road. Like, think about the guys in the 50s. They needed to be playing. That's where the money was, even though their song was on the radio. It's kind of gone back to that. So yeah, um, I'm on Pandora, I'm on Spotify, I'm on Apple, I'm on you know iTunes, I'm on all the stuff, but that's not paying me anything. I mean, those are pennies on the dollar, and sometimes less than that. And it's really it's really about showing up and playing gigs and selling your merch. Now I will tell you that the CD medium is kind of going the way of the dodo. So you know you buy the right these days you're getting the um, MP3 cards. Hmm. So you sell the yeah you sell the MP3 card for ten bucks. It's got you know your songs on it or fifteen bucks or whatever. It's got your songs on it and they can go right away. They they just log the code into their phone, and it, there it is. They got them immediately. So they don't you know I mean I have a lot of fans now. Who are like I actually don't have a CD player in my car anymore. Yeah. Is there where I can find you? Can I buy your stuff off Spotify and stuff? And I go yeah. And then they ask me, will you get the money? And I say no. <laughs> I won't. But I, either way, it's, it's really about if, if you want to make money, your question was, if you want to make money, um, you got to be out on the road. You got to be playing house concerts. House concerts play, pay me the most. 
this is a grassroots wonderful movement where I know guys who play 120 gigs in Europe every year. That's it. They, they only play Europe and they're selling it out and macking it. And then they come back to the United States and they're paying their bills. They're living, I mean, granted, you know, they're, they're living an itinerant life. They, they probably don't have much of a family going on, you know? mm. but at the same time, they have, they have a living with it and, and, a, and a good one. If you have 10,000 fans, you got, you got a, a whole career. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, like Aerosmith's got millions and billions and trillions. But if you have 10,000 people who love your stuff, you can have a living on that. You can go from Sydney. I can go to New York and go to Philly. I can go over to Cleveland. I can go up to Chicago. I can go back down. And I can make a circuit out of it. And that's not a lot of fans, man. It's really not a lot of fans. Yeah. And you're accommodating them on a level that's, that's personal where they get to meet you and talk to you and, you know, take pictures with you and you, and you know about them. And when you see them, Hey Mike, how's you doing? Hey, how's that Harley doing? The one you just bought, you know, Oh man, it's doing well. Thanks for asking. And they're excited that you know their intimate background too. Oh, did Emily have the kid? Yes, she did. She had twins. Get out of here. No way. Right. That happens all the time, but you have to be dedicated to the fact that they're dedicated to you. You have to be equally as dedicated to them. I call them lily pads. You play in a club here, a club there, you play a house concert in between. They're like the lily pads that mm. you jump on to get to the next club. Uh, definitely it would, of all the, there's a lot of musicians that have been on this podcast. I think you dig. Um, one of them is um, that I'd especially recommend is checking out uh, Madeline Finn. She's doing, um, I don't know if you're aware of like the revenue streams that are out now, like uh, Patreon. No. Basically what you do is it's, it's like an ongoing Kickstarter. It's, that's a really fascinating uh, model that's popped up in the, in recent years. Yeah. And, and, and I know guys who did the Kickstarter thing, and I just, I, they told me that it's really very labor intensive on the sense of, uh, in, the, in, the, in the back end of like, okay, yeah. give me this, I promise to send you this, this, this. And now you're sending things and you're like, whoa, I got, I need a team of people to do this. Um, and I get it. I, I mean, I'm looking at her stuff here. Yeah. Cleveland uh, and Patreon. I'm looking at her, Madeline Finn creating music Patreon. Um, and, and it's, 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 like once I, I I don't poo poo anything anymore because I it, who knows all these things are obviously um, bringing your music to other people's living rooms, phones, devices, whatever, and that's the way to do it. I still really really think that you can't beat. And I'm looking here like for her hundred dollar thing, you get a private you know house concert, you know, so like. That's really what it leads up to. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the house concert thing and going on tour and putting the gigs out there. And, and the other key that they told me years ago before I went to Nashville was there's no reason to come into this town unless you're going to come back again. Like, it's nice to say you played the Troubadour in L.A., but unless you're coming back to play it again and again and again, it's just you patting yourself on the back. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I was saying about, like, you know, the other things. Like, unless you're going to try to really push it further you're just going oh great i got to play there but really it's not enhancing your career in anything except just making you feel good about yourself which i think is really kind of a waste of time um so when you play these house concerts or you play these cities you have to come back again and i think that's what the intimacy of it all is people will know you are coming back again and then they'll tell their friends and then the next time and then you hit them up hey you know guys back in uh, cleveland I'm coming back through, da, da 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 I'll be there for this show and this show. And, you know, you give them a three-month notice that they're going to do it, and then they can kind of adjust their, their plans for that weekend night, and you show up, and they're all there. 
and they they know you're not from Cleveland, but you're coming. You know, Robinson's coming to town. Okay. Oh, dude, no way. We got to see him. He's going to be in town. And then you start to realize I did that to all the big artists when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, oh my god, do you know, you know, Def Leppard's coming. Get out of here. How long are they? You know, ACDC is going to be in town. Get the hell. When? Are, you know, and that's the same damn thing. It's the same thing, just on a smaller scale. Yeah, and that's what I I love about. Keeping, keep, yeah, keeping, uh, keeping a close eye for what's what's out there and, and completely unknown. It, like I said, at open mics and smaller curated things, because uh, it feels it always feels great to just have that ownership over, like you know, helping someone's career and realizing it's really helping them more so than it's like you know, this big artist is coming out and like, oh, everyone listen to the new, you know, Bruce Springsteen or whatever. It's like he's great, but he doesn't need my help. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. I, I think some people do have that sort of feeling of like oh come on corporations got those guys they'll be fine he's not wanting for anything and when you you know you go out to support like you know some other artists or i got some friends that i've played with and you know sometimes they throw me a couple of bucks to play with them sometimes it's just more of a favor but i'm, I'm helping this guy because they've helped me and it's that that reciprocity is key and they don't even have to be musicians it's like well, you're you're helping me right now right i mean you know here i am on I'm, when are we gonna start this podcast anyway uh <laughs> we started it no. <laughs> oh, I thought you said, when are we going to launch? When are we putting it out there? <laughs> no, when are we starting it? No. Um, it's just been too easy talking to you. And obviously, I'm helping you. It's just, you know, like, uh, got a, a musician on your stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, I'm doing busy stuff. He's, you know, he's helping me. I'm helping you. But it's really, I think that's really it. We, we can't lose the, the, the we can't lose the, 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 we can't lose sight of the, the grassroots, the, 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 genuine sort of depth of the basic stuff everybody wants to go do this everyone wants to go do that sure do you want to be selling a million albums a year of course you do do you want to have a million hits every time you put something out on youtube of course you do but ultimately that's wonderful but it's going to take it's the one step at a time every it's a new slate every day and as long as you're moving in a positive direction and you're not pissing people off i don't know man i mean just slow and steady is how i see it but as a kid i think when i was younger it had to happen fast. It wasn't going to happen. And I'm glad I don't think that way anymore. I have a more realistic view of what I do, the type of fans who come to see me, the type of music I'm good at writing, and the type of music that doesn't really work for me, for, for, for me, for writing and playing. Mm -hmm. And I love celebrating what other people do that I can't do. And I, I, when I'm sitting in a crowd and I'm watching somebody play back in the day, I was like, oh, I just want to get on stage. And now I'm like, oh, my God, this is just such a pleasure to listen to. So I think when you're a good singer-songwriter, is a good fan as well. Like you said, you support all the big bands as well still. You're, you're a great fan of music. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like any struggling podcast, I can always use a little iTunes love with a five-star rating or swing by the Facebook page, throw a like my way, maybe a couple of comments. And if you really, really like the show, you can kick a couple of bucks my way at patreon.com slash bzdug. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Okay, that's it. End of podcast. Enjoy whatever it is you're about to do next. Thanks. Bye.